is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hello and welcome to episode number four in the N2 Backpacking podcast series. This is Bird Shooter, and tonight I'm going to speak with Roger Cardell, a.k.a. The Camel, who I've hiked uh, with many miles over the years. The topic this evening is the Chilkut Trail. It's a 33-mile route that starts uh, around Dye, Alaska, a ghost town, actually, near the port town of Skagway, and ends at uh, Lake Bennett. Uh, it's in British Columbia, also a ghost town that only has a small church and train station that remain. Of course, the train station used by Chilkut hikers to return to the area of Skagway, uh, where they started their experience. In the 1890s, the Chilkut Trail was a major access route to the Yukon gold fields, uh, chronicled by Jack London in stories called White Fang and called The Wild that you may have read. I do incorrectly state in the uh, podcast that he was English. He was, in fact, an American author and publicist born in San Francisco. Although the route that he had traveled himself and that he wrote so passionately about uh, is now mostly traveled by backpackers, and particularly between the months of uh, June and September each year. As they climb over the Chilkut Pass, featured in uh, many photos of the trail, as the Klondikers had made their way into the uh, Canadian uh, outback and on their way to the Yukon gold fields. The Chilkut Pass is uh, it's about a 2,600-foot climb from Sheep Camp. It's done over uh, only a few miles. We're going to talk to the camel tonight about his uh, experiences in getting to the trailhead, uh, the social life of the trail, and how that actually led to a somewhat challenging crossing of the Chilkut Path for, for him. But on the other side, uh, when I say other side, in the Canadian side, uh, certainly some beautiful campsites with turquoise lakes, snow-capped mountains uh, surrounding them that I think uh, made the experience pretty rewarding for Roger Cardo, a.k.a. the camel. And um, without further induction, here is Roger Cardo. So we've got Roger Cardo, a.k.a. The Camel, today on the show. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Chilkut Trail. Actually, 10 years ago, this July in 2001, that we did the Chilkut. Um, Roger, thanks for joining us. Why, thank you for having me, Steve. Can you believe 10 years have gone by so quickly? It does fly. It does fly. Absolutely. So uh, I guess maybe a first question for you as we kind of tee off the uh, podcast. Um, have you read? You're English, obviously, so you're familiar with Jack London, English guy? Um, yes, yes. And Call of the Wild and various right. other books. Absolutely. Curious if you uh, read the book before you went on the chill cut and if that was a motivator for you at all in doing the trip. Um, I think I did breeze through the book, but it wasn't so much a motivator as... Uh, I'd also read up on the scenery, the beauty, and the history of the trail, and uh, it just sounded like one of the best um, places to go hiking. Yes, so you know, I guess to kind of tee the audience up here on uh, how, how the trip started for us, we started with a flight into Juneau, so kind of the starting point of the adventure. And uh, spent the first night, obviously, uh, exploring the town of Juneau. Did you uh, did you enjoy the sights in Juneau? And um, how about the karaoke experience uh, the first night we were in town? Fortunately, uh, the local population must be half deaf. Because if you've heard any of us, you would understand why. Oh, that's a good point. Now, I, Matt Russell also on the trip, a.k.a. Yukon Matt. Uh, you know, I think he can hold a tune a little better than I could, but uh, I, w I would have to agree with you on that. Um, we did meet the Canadian Navy that night. 
if yeah. I recall. Yes, we did. And, and, uh, and that you had a rich uh, experience with the Canadian Navy as our uh, week played out, I understand. Uh, yes, uh, we seemed to uh, strike it off right from the bat. And uh, as we found out that they were also going to be on the trail, we uh, struck up a definite friendship and uh, agreed to meet along the way. Uh, which we did, and I'll save the uh, the, the exciting bits of uh, what happened there um, for later in the broadcast. But uh, let, let's talk a little bit about from Juneau. You know, for those of you that don't know, you've got to get to Skagway. So Skagway, Alaska, is essentially the launch point for the Chilkoot Trail. Um, and, and, and to be frank, it's not just Skagway. You've got to get up to Dye. But your first step is get to Skagway. And if you recall, Raj, we had a ferry booked to take us from um, basically Juneau to Skagway. Nightmare. Uh, Nightmare. Yeah. You, you want to elaborate on that topic? Well, yeah. Um, the year before, we went to Denali, and it was a kind of a hodgepodge mess. We never really synchronized what we were going to do. So uh, for this trip, we decided that every, every day there, we, we knew what we were going to do. So prior to the trip, I, uh, I booked the ferry um, tickets and uh, every time I did it, uh, they changed the dates or said the ferry was not in operation, blah, blah, blah. So finally when we got there, we totally had enough and decided we'd uh, get a plane over instead, one of those small uh, prop pond hoppers. Yeah, and actually, uh, to, to your point, I think most people that do the Chilkoot, they take a ferry from Skagway, uh, or excuse me, from Juneau to Skagway, but uh, the schedules were constantly changing on us. We rolled into um, Juneau, and, and again, the schedule had changed on us, so yeah, I think we just walked up to a random air service, uh, Skagway Air, I'm not entirely sure who it was, but I know it was about 140 bucks round trip, and uh, basically bought a ticket on site, right? It was uh, not much more expensive than the ferry was. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really wasn't actually, and the, the view from the plane was outstanding. So, obviously, Raj, one of the first things that comes to mind for me of course, when you get on one of these small planes, they want to weigh your luggage. And I think you were first to tip the scales, if I remember correct. Yes. Uh, I had my pack there, and uh, obviously they had to weigh me, which was a, also a big joke. <laughs> That's accurate. And then they weighed my pack, which was uh, even more hilarious for the people standing around until they had to put their packs on. Yeah, and I was one of those people, Raj, if I remember. I think I was the first to bust the gut and, uh, and you know, quickly chastise you for, if I recall, a 68-pound pack. Yeah, that was, uh, that was reasonable for me. The only problem with that, Raj, is the uh, my pack weighed 67 pounds. Yes, which uh, I was quite delighted in. <laughs> So my, my laughter quickly uh, was, uh, I guess, curtailed, although two of our other, uh, uh, I guess, co-conspirators in the adventure, um, Yukon Matt, a.k.a. Matt Russell, and um, Matt Kennedy, Alan Kennedy, pardon me, who uh, goes by the name The Senator. They uh, weighed in a little lighter. I think Yukon Matt was in about 50 pounds. Uh, Alan came in about 49 pounds, so um, got to give them credit. They clearly had figured something out that you and I hadn't at the time. Yeah, but they weigh probably 30 pounds less than us. <laughs> well, I guess you might have a point there. I, I will you know, surely uh, jump on the chance to say that since then I've uh, learned to pack much smarter. And I will also say that I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll back you up on that. Of course, there's other things that are weighing you down that uh, you're not uh, fully explaining here, like your eight-pound tent, right? But, yeah. Uh, we, we won't beat you up on that too much. So anyway... Um, Basically, we get out to uh, Skagway, and you want to talk a little bit about your Skagway experience and uh, where we went from there? Yeah, well, uh, the, the first of all, the flight was outstanding, and uh, we flew past, I believe it was the Mendenhall Glacier, and uh, then we were flying up, and uh, we passed the flotilla of uh, minesweepers that the Canadian Navy were on. The very people we met the night before. Yeah. The very people we would spend the week on the trail with. Yeah. We saw them uh, cruising up there. So uh, we flew up to Skagway, which is uh, a very interesting um, 
flight in, one would say. Uh, you know, I actually put some notes down here, Roger. You're 100% right because when the plane, and the plane's not very big, by the way, but when it comes into the little valley that Skagway sits in, literally the pilot essentially just drops the plane down in there. It's amazing. Uh, you know, just curious to get your feelings on what that experience was like. Well, yeah, you, you fly up between two mountains and you can see the runway, just the single airstrip below, and you go past it, and then all of a sudden, he points the plane towards the mountain, banks it, flips it over, feathers the prop, and tries to do a 180, and so you go past that mountain, and then you see the other one on the other side, and he just pulls it back in time to turn around and drop the plane down right on the runway. And honestly, it feels like, uh, you know, for those of you that haven't been, it, it feels like you're just dropping out of the air. I mean, yep. he just it literally cuts it and drops it right down in there. It's an amazing experience for sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think... Uh, I think it was uh, pretty cool to get to Skagway. We had a lot of stuff we had to deal with. Um, do you recollect? Because I made a few notes here. All the all the things that were um, on the agenda when we hit Skagway. Well, I believe we had to get our passes. Was one thing. Yeah, and you may have forgotten, and I had actually forgotten until I went back through the notes, but we had originally planned to go out the following day, and because we caught the quick flight over, instead of having a half-day, I think, ferry ride, you know, we literally got there within an hour or so, so we pushed our schedule up. So one of the first things we did was actually go to the uh, park service and get a permit change. And then uh, it was kind of a frenzy of activity. We changed our hotel reservations, changed our permits. We had to book our train tickets to get back from the uh, Lake Bennett terminus of the trail. And then um, I think we actually had a few last-minute supplies that we had to get. And then get a ride to Dai, which requires the shuttle, right? Yeah. So the, lots of activity. I think we did a great job kind of dividing and conquering and splitting those tasks up. But uh, lo and behold, that same day... I think it's probably around 5.20, we're leaving Dai to hit the trail. And I don't think we even planned to go out that night. No. But uh, you might recall that uh, we basically hiked about 7.8 miles that first night and uh, hiked past, I, I think it was um, Finland Point, maybe, to Canyon City was where we actually uh, spent the night. So were you surprised? We had, we had 20 people in the campsite that night. Were you surprised by the number of the people on the trail? Yeah, I, I knew that they only uh, allowed a limited amount on the trail, so uh, it was a little surprised, but that, it was, you know, there was not too many people there. Uh, the campsite was full, but not overcrowded, and uh, when we got there, it was only half full anyway, it was in the morning when you discovered just how many people were there. Yeah, and that's the thing, you bring up a good point, Roger, because that's the thing that surprised me the most was the number of people that rolled in late. You know, I thought we were getting started at 5.20. I figured we were probably going to be the last ones to roll in camp. But, I mean, there were people coming in after sunset as late as 10.30 at night. Yeah. So, Woke yeah. up in the morning and uh, there was uh, all new tents all the way around us. Yeah, it was amazing. And yeah. I think uh, you made friends with a particular lady, if I recall, or...? Well, I wouldn't say friends, but uh, we got a little more intimate than I would have uh, liked. The, uh, by the, accident. Yeah, the uh, Canadian Navy guys had uh, already told us that the uh, reason they were there was the uh, senator from the Yukon, who happens to be uh, a lady um, in her late 60s, uh, had decided to do the Chilkoot Trail for probably a 50th time. Yeah, she, she'd done it quite a bit. Uh, I think uh, she actually took our picture at the um, campsite that morning, the next morning, I believe. Yeah, so... Uh, and we'll leave it to that, probably. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would like to just... Uh, <laughs> Add that one little bit. So uh, I wake up in the morning and uh, open my tent up, and to my surprise, there's um, three or four more tents around me. I think nothing of it. Then I hear some uh, messing around and people packing and doing doing their stuff. And then the, the next thing I know, the the tent directly in front of me unzips, 
and this big lily white bottom comes wumbling out. Thanks, I'm sure that uh, will be a, you know, a mem- moment to remember for the viewers or the listeners. It, it was a moment to remember for me, believe me. <laughs> So let's let's talk about day two. So on day two, um, we had a shorter hike, uh, only about 5.2 miles to Sheep Camp. For those that uh, are not familiar with the Chilkoot Trail, Sheep Camp is actually the uh, last camp that you stay in before you climb the roughly 3,000-foot mountain up over the Chilkoot Pass, which is the picture you see in a lot of the old 1800 shots of the gold miners making their way back to the gold fields. So um, I understand that uh, you know I think we rolled in there fairly early, right? We had yeah, yeah, five miles to go. It was a good hike, and uh, the good thing about this hike is that you go through every terrain that you can think of. We started off, and it was bogs with um, a few log walkways, and uh, you could see beaver dams. And then uh, on the way up, it, it changed to virtually subalpine, where you had a lot of lichen on the rocks. When you went up to sheep camp, and if I remember correctly, the mountains were each side of sheep camp, and they still had snow on them. So you know, you knew that the uh, elevation was changing, and, and that you were going up. And uh, you know, there was a beautiful uh, river or creek, as it as it may, on the side. So it, it was really pleasant. Yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. I enjoyed the hike up there. It wasn't overly difficult. And uh, once you got there, you're sandwiched in between, you know, mountains on both sides. It was super scenic. I think we had a campsite right on one of the streams that came through there. Uh, I believe the Park Service had like a little, um, uh, you know, kind of educational event that evening. So uh, it was it was it was a great great. Uh, I guess warm up for the climb the next day. Until what happened to you there, Roger? Well, uh, our friends, the Canadian Navy, rolled in. <laughs> yes, they did. My buddies. So uh, they set up camp, and uh, you know, we were all there talking away, what have you. Did we have a campfire? I think we did, didn't we? You know, I can't recall. I mean, I think maybe the Park Service may have had a campfire as part of their. Um, uh, historical lesson that night, but um, you know, I know you got quite chummy with the Canadian Navy once again uh, because you had a pack of cigarettes, I believe. I did, uh, for some unknown reason. Uh, I brought a pack of Marlboros with me, and uh, one of the boys came over and he's like, Man, I'm, I'm just like dying for a cigarette. Have you got any cigarettes? I'm like, Well, as it happens, yes, I do. And I'm like, what have you got? And he's like, well, I've got a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> fatal. <laughs> Absolutely fatal. So, so you're back into the 1800s of the barter system of trading, uh, you know, goods just like the ancient, uh, uh, I guess, um, Klondikers did, right? And how did that work out for you? That's the million dollar question. At the time, good. But later on, not too good. Would you would you care to elaborate on that? Because if I recall, the next morning it was raining. We got up at 6.30 to get over the pass uh, and give us plenty of time to get to happy camp. I don't recall you, Roger Cardo, a.k.a. the camel, being particularly happy the next morning. Well, I was actually crawling in my tent as people were actually crawling out and taking theirs down. <laughs> One whiskey seemed to lead to another and That's another. <laughs> It's and you know you don't want to take that heavy bottle over that mountain with you, do you? So we decided to finish it off. Well, that, that, that is thinking like a true backpacker. Somebody that carries sixty-eight pounds, though, I'm I'm shocked with the intelligence there. That's that's a well-stated comment there. Well, I was just doing it for their benefit because they were the ones carrying it. <laughs> you are a good trail citizen, Roger. That's what I respect about you. Well, I try. I, I you know I did my part there, but. <laughs> Life was not good in the morning. So let, let's talk about that a little bit, because for the studio audience here, it's a, it's a pretty brutal climb up uh, over the Chilkoot Pass. Um, you know, in our case, it was mostly snow. There was some hand-over-hand rocks, especially lower. Uh, but we were there first week of July. Actually, July 1st was the day we climbed it, because it was Canada Day. Yeah. But... Later in the season, you might not have that issue, but do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience going over the pass? Well, yeah, I mean, well, after I finally, like, laid down for three minutes and then got up and packed my tent, 
I had probably the world's worst hangover for a start. So I'm trudging behind everyone and I probably drank about 20 litres of water going up out of every creek I could find. And finally, and I mean, it was the weather returned, it was beautiful when we camped to sheep camp. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was beautiful. Sun was out, very pretty. It was miserable. It was warm that night. Yeah, the next day was totally different. It was miserable. So we're up in our rain gear trudging along and uh, you go through, it's all rocky, you go out, out of the woods basically and there's no vegetation then it's just like a moonscape. You start trudging up there then you hit the snow and it's rocks and snow then finally it's just snow and you keep trudging it and then you see it. So you just aim for that point and uh, as, as the morning progressed and the liters of water were consumed. <laughs> many liters. Yeah, many liters. Vast liters. I finally rehydrated, and uh, we got to the uh, bottom of the golden staircase, and uh, it's uh, something you don't really expect, because you think, well, okay, there's going to be a few boulders, but it's not the case. These things are enormous. They're like Volkswagen Beetles, just end on end, as far as you can see. And everywhere each side, it's all snowy, but these rocks, I guess they get heated up by the sun. They're, uh, they're snow free, and uh, there's no trail. You just have to pick yourself, pick your way through, hand on hand. And then uh, once you get over that, you're in the snow again, and that's when it became a whiteout. And uh, you kind of looked around, and you started to see these orange marker poles, like plastic poles just bright orange and you just kept trudging on and literally it was a whiteout first of July whiteout and you start trudging up and you just keep going and all of a sudden you realize you're starting to decline and that I believe is when you get to Canada the crest of the hill and you start to decline down and then finally you there's a, just a tiniest little ranger station there and uh, the guy comes out and he's all happy and that and he gave everyone a flag and a pin he's like it's Canada Day welcome to Canada yeah and I don't know if you remember he actually had um, he had some balloons on those uh, stakes toward the end to kind of celebrate Canada Day and when you uh, had mentioned the beginning of the big climb over the past right that's actually the scales where back in the 1800s they used to weigh the gear and you know a lot of the haulers that were working by pound um, would basically figure out how much you'd have to pay them to get this, you know, the gear, the, the outfit over the mountain. And literally, they, if someone else came up with a better price, they just dump your stuff on the side of the trail and pick the other stuff up and carry on. That's right, that's right. But it, it was a tough climb, and you're absolutely right. When you got to the top of the pass, I mean, it was it was rain, sleet, snow, rain, sleet, snow. Just you know, you never Mist. knew what you were going to get. Yeah, Misty, was, cloudy. Um, yeah, come to the website and you'll see the pictures and see what we're talking about. But then once you get to the top where the ranger station was, there was a nice little warming hut. I think I remember both you and I and uh, Yukon Matt and the senator being in there and just steam rolling off our clothes. Oh, literally, had, yeah. Uh, and I remember uh, Stinky was in there. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. Um, a fellow hiker who was hiking on his own, but... Uh, he was rather melodorous, shall we say. Yeah, not unusual for uh, people to be on the trail multiple days and to not smell particularly well, which uh, we'll get into that on the ride back into town, right? There, there's a way they deal with that. So just to stick to the flow of the whole trail, um, after we crossed into, at this point, I guess it's um, British Columbia, right? Yeah, it, it used to be the Yukon, I believe, but they... They kind of changed where the territories were and the border. But I believe when it was the actual gold rush... It was the Yukon. It was the Yukon. I think, and actually I don't have it in front of me right now, and I apologize to the studio audience, but we may have actually touched the corner of the Yukon before we went into British mm, Columbia. May well have. Um, but from that point on, avalanche area, right? You know, we're told not to stop, keep hiking, lots of snow. I mean, there was, uh, I think, three or four lakes up at the pass there that were completely frozen over the first uh, day of July. Crater Lake, Morrow Lake were two of the lakes. 
Um, one of them was like just slightly starting to melt. The other was completely frozen over. I mean, it was absolutely a snowscape, if you recall. Well, yeah, we got to it, and it, it looked like we were on a corniche, like on an extinct volcano. And uh, you literally hiked around the rim. You were probably, well, halfway down. It seemed like halfway down. You still had the slope up above, but you, you were just hiking around a huge bowl. And when you looked down because of the um, fog, you couldn't see anything. So I, I have no idea how, how far down it was, but that was the avalanche area. So you just kept trudging. And uh, one of the things I noticed as soon as we set foot on it, there were huge wolf prints, fresh wolf prints, right across the trail, and uh, which was kind of... Uh, Interesting. Unexpected. Unexpected. I'm, I was like, well, what's a wolf going to eat up there? And I'm like, oh, hikers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's pretty barren up there. Mm. So, um, you know, one of my memories that, uh, you know, 10 years later I'll never forget is how you described our rolling into what they call happy camp. You called uh, something different, if I remember. It was definitely unhappy camp. <laughs> it was probably one of the most miserable downcast places I've ever seen. <laughs> Which I actually had my tent pitched right on the water. It was beautiful, uh, you know, with, even with the snowscape. And, you know, being there June 1st, excuse me, July 1st, lots of snow. I would imagine if you ever were to do the trail in August or later, that would not be the case. I think we had a couple friends, Glenn and Susan, who I interviewed episode one, who had gone uh, in August, and there was absolutely no snow anywhere. So different experience for you and I, but um, well, 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 you know, we did quite quite considerable research on it, and uh, they said once you got over the mountain range, the other side was supposed to be really clear, and, and uh, you know, the weather just didn't make it over the mountains. Well, they lied. <laughs> well, we, we did have that experience, though, when we got further on, like around Bear Loon Lake, right? Yeah, but I mean, it was miserable. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were just hiking in sleet and pouring rain, and we got there. And uh, there's definitely limited camping around, uh, unhappy camp. And uh, you pitch your tent and muscle your way into the warming hut, and uh, all the fellow hikers that we kind of met were all in there and steam coming off them and uh, finally the Canadian crew came in and uh, they were in a sorry state. Well, I mean, and the thing that they had working against them, which uh, obviously you had working against you as well uh, from the uh, antics the previous night, but they had double the mileage. I think they were going 11 miles that they day. They were. Yeah, and they got a late start. I mean, I think we started at 6.30, and they were, you know, this was their leave. This was supposed to be their vacation, right? And I felt bad for them when they rolled into Happy Camp. Well, evidently the... Uh Senator from the Yukon, who uh, I know intimately, twisted her ankle, so she had to uh, turn back. Oh, that's right, she ended up going back. I saw. So I'm, I'm not sure if a couple of them escorted them, but the rest probably had a later start than they expected. But one of their main problems, they were hiking in Army issue boots or, or Navy issue boots, as it were, just leather boots, and they were just. They, they were just sodden and uh, one of the poor girls who came in her feet were just raw yeah, I mean I, I had actually uh, Roger taken a nap I, when we first got to happy camp I pitched my tent I was so exhausted I took a nap for probably an hour or two at least and then met you guys in the hut and when I got there, I was probably there maybe 30, 40 minutes, and the Canadian Navy started rolling in, and she had taken her boots off. And I looked at her feet, and I felt terrible for her because she still had she still had a number of miles left in that day. And uh, I, I was so happy that we were done, I can't even tell you. And I, mean, and I, I certainly, and our whole crew, I mean, I think you were the only one out of the crew that uh, had any libations the previous night, you know, uh, the senator, Yukon, Matt, and myself, we uh, we abstained. We went to bed early, so I, I, you know, I felt fairly fresh, but I was still exhausted. So I can't imagine. I can't imagine what she was going through. You know. I know, and well, we broke all our um, first aid kits out and patched the feet up. Used I, I used all my moleskin that I had, patch your feet up, but and then we uh, put plastic bags over over a sock so they wouldn't get wet again. Yeah. 
Well, you know, you had a symbiotic relationship with them. They, uh, they, they were taking care of you the night before. You were taking care of them, and it just kept going as we uh, went through the trail. So you're a good trail soldier there, Raj. Absolutely. Maybe it's because you're from the Commonwealth, and, you know, you can relate, and uh, you're right in there, man. Yeah, they were all happy because I guess the Royal Navy had just given them, like, five submarines, and they were all jazzed about that. <laughs> I guess they were whizzing around under the North Atlantic in their new toys. Maybe it's all the time you and I spend uh, fishing in Canada, Canada too, that uh, help the relations there. I don't oh, know. I think so. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that that uh, that was uh, a memorable experience, to say the least. So, Raj, um, we leave Happy Camp. And if you remember, uh, the, the skies, I think, actually started to slowly clear. Oh, and, yeah, it was, it was like night and day. Absolutely. And uh, true to form, like uh, you said when we were there, it's going to clear up as we uh, go down in elevation. And uh, we slowly started hiking down, and uh, it was really good. There's uh, a lot of artifacts along the way, which also there were up on the other side. You know, that's one thing we have not covered at all in this podcast, and I think it's, it's, it's very relevant. There's a lot of very cool artifacts on the way. Um, there's a, I think I remember seeing a very large boiler that uh, was used, I think, to power one of the trams. There were a lot of different trams that they used to haul gear. Yeah, it was uh, ingenious. I'm, I'm still scratching my head as, as I'm in uh, engineering and stuff like that, how they actually got it up to where they did, because the... Uh, the creeks weren't that deep, so I have no idea unless they build it on site, but then you need um, furnaces for the rivets and what have you, but this thing was absolutely huge, and then all the wiring, all the wire for the cables and everything. Yep, yep, and all that stuff is around, I mean, we, we also saw some artifacts, uh, you know, pot-bellied stoves, pans, we saw a number of boat frames that, uh, you know, were obviously closer to the Lake Bennett side, but, yeah, but actually pretty impressive, the, the number of artifacts. Well, that was it, I mean, well, that said that they'd actually hunt them over the pass, and down the other side and uh, never quite made it to uh, Lake Bennett but I mean the, the wrought iron the weight of it it's just crazy thinking what they were actually pulling over that place yeah I mean, you really can only appreciate what these folks went through until you go through it I mean it's uh, you know what you were carrying I gotta believe you got that 68 pounds down to 60 I'd like to believe that although I'm not totally sure but I can't imagine carrying like that load or a hundred pounds over and over again well they had to get um, the Canadian Mounties after um earlier uh, forays into the Yukon where people just died of starvation required each person to have I believe six months supplies before they let them through. Yeah I think it was actually a year and um, you know I, I'll, when I do the intro to this thing I'll tell you exactly the, the weight but it was a significant amount of gear they had to haul and it wasn't one trip it was over and over and over again to get their kit up there. Well that was it and, and it was in like wooden boxes it wasn't like they had backpacks and everything was comfortable they were just sticking huge boxes on their shoulders and hiking up there just one time after another. Yeah, um, yeah, so you're not making me feel too sorry for yourself there, Roger, on your hangover when you climbed uh, across uh, the Chilkut Pass there, buddy. Well, I think one of my boxes, I believe the average was like 60 times they had to do it. All right. So mine would have probably been 61 or 62 because I'd have had a couple of crates of whiskey to keep me going, I think. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So I don't know if you remember, um, Raj, but uh, when we left Happy Camp, we actually get down to Lindman City, which I thought Lindman City was kind of cool. There was uh, some little small cabins there. There was a nice lake. The great thing about being over the pass is you go from a bunch of creeks that you're essentially hiking along to beautiful lakes with mountains all around them. Oh, it, it was outstanding. Actually, when we went down, I was surprised the... Uh, Part of it where the elevation dropped, I mean, it was it was like class five rapids and that, and the the vegetation totally changed. You could you could tell that you were you were lower, and uh, I was surprised even up there to see frogs, um, which I I just didn't think uh, ventured that far north. And uh, like Steve said, then we headed towards Lake Linderman, and uh, it was beautiful. Um, 
one of the most turquoise lakes you, you could ever imagine with uh, beautiful white sand beaches it, it was absolutely just coming upon it from where we come where it was all rainy and nasty it was just like night and day it was it was beautiful well yeah, i'll tell you the thing that really surprised me and this gets a little further down the trail but when you'd actually hit the sand it's like you know you're hiking in sand for yeah. a good way and it's just amazing that you're on top of this mountain and you're hiking in all this sand you know that, well, that, that was confusing to me well the thing that I loved about the trail was it encompassed everything you can possibly imagine in the hike. You went from bogs and uh, like beaver dams, subalpine to like alpine, then snow, sleet, everything, then down the other side, and then beautiful turquoise lakes, sand. It was just like anything that you've ever hiked in, you will get on this on this hike. Which brings me to one of my favorite campsites on the trail, and I would have to guess probably yours as well. And admittedly, we we spent uh, five days out there, and I think we camped for four nights, so we didn't hit all the campsites. But uh, Bearloon Lake, uh, the night we spent there, probably my most favorite night on the trail. It was, oh, you know, please elaborate on that. It, the place was so serene, and uh, after all we've been through, and we knew. But you know, we we were nearing the end of it. It's it was our last night, I believe, camping. And uh, I remember Steve and myself just sitting there at the edge of the lake, feet in the water. And uh, I happened to bring two cigars with me, which I'd saved. So uh, we uh, unwrapped those and uh, just smoked those, not saying a word to each other, just looking at the scenery and. Uh, as its name suggests, there was a couple of loons there with the, the eerie calls just at sunset. And uh, what I remember, there was a mountain opposite, which was snow-capped, and the lake was so still. You had the uh, you had the mirror image of it, the reflection of it, just there. And we took a photo, and when we got them developed, you didn't know which way was up. It, it was it was so still. I've actually got a photo of that on my website, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, the other thing that was kind of cool about Bearloon Lake was it was our last night on the trail. You know, obviously you're hiking with a pack of uh, through hikers. We'd made some friends along the way. Uh, obviously, you're a big fan of the Canadian Navy. I know we had a great time with them, but then we met some other folks that were with us at Bearloon Lake. The Canadian movie, Navy had moved on at that point. Um, and uh, we, we, I think we ran into them again in Skagway. But you know, here it is, last night on, your, on the trail. You got your trail buddies with you. You've got this amazing scenery. You know, you wish you had a fishing pole because because the lake looks just like you could just slay the fish in there, right? Oh, it would. It did. It did. And uh, like Steve said, uh, I, I was only uh, talking about the uh, Canadian Navy guys, but we also met a. A lot of other good people on the trail and um, we all arranged when we got back to uh, Skagway we'd all meet up at um, the Red Onion which is uh, now a, a bar but it's fully restored it used to be the uh, local um, place of entertainment shall we say <laughs> yeah yeah you can uh, use your imagination on that and, and that was a great time i mean i think we ran into uh, probably at least 10 or 12 people that we were on the trail with when we uh, got there and wasn't the two people who were doing it in the reverse direction yeah, you don't see that much i think there was a couple of german folks yeah that we ran into that went the other way which is kind of unusual um which you know certainly be easier if you think about it yeah it's just kind of to me the whole idea and the ambiance of it is you are walking in the footsteps of the gold rushes so doing it back to front kind of you know would have took a little bit away from it I agree. I agree, and I actually felt that way about the Appalachian Trail. Although I know some people go southbound because they don't have a choice. It's a timing thing. But it's nice to go in the direction of history. Yeah. We, we were following history where they were just hiking, right. in my 
point of view. Hey, I mean, do it however you can. I mean, I respect anybody that goes out there and knocks a Chilkat trail out. Yeah. But uh, to me, to go in the direction of the Klondikers uh, was the right way for me. Oh, yeah. So let, let's talk about the grand finale. You roll into Lake Bennett, which is the end of the trail. Well, amazing lake, right? Well, yeah, but actually, um, before we got there, it was um, really strange. We had the usual hiking through um, forests, rocks, you know, the usual. And then all of a sudden we came on these huge sand dunes. Remember those? Absolutely bizarre. Never would have anticipated that. I mean, it's just like you get on the uh, back of one of the big beaches in California. Huge sand dunes, no vegetation on them. And... Your ankles, I mean, by this time you can smell Lake Bennett, you think you're finished and all of a sudden you've got these sand dunes that you start hiking up and you're just sinking up to your ankles in them. And it was amazing and there was a few old cabins there that were... Hunting cabins. Yeah, and that they were virtually where the sand dunes had just crept up and they were like right. up to the roofs on them. And... Uh, then we hit Lake Bennett and there's uh, an old church there. Yeah, beautiful old church, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, for those of you that are not familiar with Lake Bennett, it's uh, essentially a ghost town. There's a church there that's not even used. I think it's just uh, the structure. Yeah. And a train station that is used, that is your essentially your way out. And before we get into the, uh, the you know, the method to get out of the terminus of the trail you know let's talk about lake bennett itself because i was blown away by lake bennett beautiful water it's surrounded by mountains this is basically the place where the klondikers would hike to and build their raft or not raft but build their boat that would float down the yukon and essentially get to the gold fields but absolutely a beautiful lake and uh, you know, after being on the trail for five days, um, I personally, and I believe Alan, A.K.A. the Senator, had to take a dip. Do you recall how cold that water was? No, because I wasn't stupid enough to go in it. <laughs> I already knew how cold it was. That's funny because you're absolutely right. It was like, oh my god, it was unbelievable. I, I thought that you were literally going to have to hook me up to a cardiac monitor because my heart might stop. It was so cold. I'd never laughed so much in about five days. <laughs> yeah, but so, you know, I mean, I, I honestly, being on the trail five days, it was nice to, to jump in and get refreshed, so to speak, which leads me to... Well, I was perfectly happy stinking like the rest of the people. <laughs> I knew how cold the water was. Which is exactly why when they take you out of there on a train, they put you in a caboose, if you remember. Yeah. And uh, we got some nice photos with, uh, I believe, the conductor. Well, yeah, it's, um, if you ever see the uh, program, the series, Scenic Railway Journeys of the World, uh, I believe it's the number one scenic railway journey. And, uh, with good reason. With very good reason. It is absolutely outstanding. Stunning. And a lot of people that actually do the uh, rail line are people that come into Skagway on a cruise ship. Skagway is a big cruise town. You know, obviously a lot of people float the inner passage. They catch a cruise ship. They uh, get up to Skagway. They take the train. Now we, on the other hand, took the train out. We didn't take the train in. Yeah, so uh, they have a special caboose on the very back of the train for uh, stinky people by all accounts. Yes, they do, and yes, we were, if I recall. Well, everyone stunk the same, so no one thought anything of it. And the guy that you saw on top of the Chilkut Pass stunk a little more. Oh, well, well apart from stinky. <laughs> he had I'm, his own seat at the very end. I'm going out on a limb there, but I'm just guessing. No, he was pungent. <laughs> So uh, so anyway, um, when you know, for those of you that don't know, what happens is they've got a, a, a very large train that goes, I think, about maybe eighty percent of the way in, and then the last little bit to Lake Bennett, it's narrow gauge train track, right? Yeah. So they've got to bring a, a special, essentially caboose with a sidecar that they come in to take your backpacks and people out. And uh, so, and the, and the guy who does it, um, you'll see him on the Great Railway Journeys. He's all 
dressed in the 1800s um, railroad uniform and that so of course we all got our pictures taken with him yeah I got a great picture of you with him actually yeah he's, he, he's the guy you see so uh, and he's really friendly yeah so uh, yeah then you all get on board and uh, go down I, I can't think of the place where they hook, hook you up yeah I can't remember the place that they switch from the narrow gauge to the big gauge where they have the regular train but we stayed in the caboose yeah they, they didn't move us out the tourists uh, from the you know cruise ships were in the proper train the yeah, sticky we, people were in the caboose yeah there was something about you know well we have to use cattle prods if you get out yeah exactly with good reason um, I don't know if you remember there was actually a benefactor um, somebody had hiked the trail that um, had uh, been given some beer and food and you know he was gracious enough to share his beer with us we each had one beer I think uh, on the ride out was inhaled not drank yeah no kidding it was my first beer in like five days but uh, so then then we obviously take the train uh, they hook us up to the big train and then we go back down into Skagway but but the actual journey they um there was a second trail that they actually did over the um the white pass route yeah the, and um they were saying how many mules and you could see the the winding trail way down below it's it's absolutely amazing how they actually built the tracks there but you could see way down below where the trail was where the mule trains came up and you could just understand the uh mortality rate of humans and animals well i think historically a lot of the folks that hit the klondike fields were from the city they weren't experienced with animals you know uh they, you know they got these pack animals they didn't treat them right they didn't know how to take care of them they, they literally drove them to the death um i can't imagine what that experience would be like for you know either party but uh you know fortunately in our case we're taking the train out we get back down to Skagway, and I guess the first thing we do is check in the hotel, get cleaned up. Well, first of all, we uh, hit U.S. Customs. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, because um, the other reason we're uh, segregated is um, everyone else on the train has just um, gone up and uh, been in the U.S., but obviously we've hiked in from Canada, although we've hiked from the States, did a U- U-turn and, and are going back. We, we still have to pass immigration getting back in, into the U.S. So I have to check, and I have to do a little research here for the studio audience, but I think that's where we switched chain, trains, right? No, it was actually when we got to Skagway. Oh, that's right. We had Be- customs there. That's because right. Gotcha. Th- they were waiting when we got off, and it's just like we basically, I don't think we had passports. I think we just had to show our passes, Right. if, I, if I'm correct, the, um, you know, the uh, parks pass saying that we left right. the U.S. on July or June the 30th and blah right. blah blah. But uh, yeah, once we got off there, then back to the hotel and uh, got freshened up, and then uh, met everyone at the Red Onion. Yeah, and they were they were I think ahead of us when we got there. Um, you know, first beer in well, second beer in five days, right? So. Um, that, that was certainly pretty beneficial. So, Roger, I don't know if you remember this, but I think the day we came out was July 3rd. Yeah, it must have been. The next day we uh, got back to Juneau, July 4th. Yeah. Your favorite day being English, if I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being called a peasant many times on July 4th. How do you feel about that? I think it's... Um Perfectly all right. <laughs> and are, probably are, justified. Are you a little bitter about? Um, are you a little bitter about Independence Day as an Englishman? Doesn't really bother me. <laughs> are you sure? Well, it's a good party day. What, what do I care? What, what you really like is the fact that everybody in this world speaks English. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and not French, right? Well, let's face it. It's like okay. The 13 colonies rebelled, but uh, we kicked the French out of Canada, so, you know, (laughs) we continued on. We had India, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. I could go on and on. You're on a roll. I can't argue with that. But, you know, it's 4th of July. Did you really need to call me a peasant? That's probably one of the days I really do. (laughs) 
Oh, I love it. That, that was certainly a memorable moment on the trip there. Uh, so, I guess a, a final question for you. Well, at, you know, before I ask the final question, the closer, as you might call it, um, I gotta ask you. We went fishing on July 4th in Juneau when we get back to Juneau. Again, another fabulous plane ride, right? Like, I can't tell you how beautiful that it was. It is. I highly encourage you and, and not to knock the ferry because I'm, I'm sure the ferry is, is a equally a scenic ride. But, you know, we really... If they ever go on time. <laughs> well, you said that. I didn't. Um, so then we go fishing in Juneau. I think we hired a charter trip, a salmon trip, right? Did you catch a fish? No, well I did, but I didn't get it in the boat. <laughs> did you catch a buzz? Oh, every time. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. So I, I guess the final question before we wrap up here today. Um, you know, of all the trips I've done in the last 10 years, maybe 20, that was big. Well, yeah, one, one of my top five, right? Have you done any major trip like that since, and uh, if so, which one? Well, not five days, but we've done a couple of three days with uh, the uh, commentator here who drags me up to New Hampshire and Maine each fall just as it's a perfect time for it to sleet and snow. <laughs> well, you know, you, you have a, a, I guess an affection for that. But is that probably... Of all the trips that you've done in the last 10 years, is that your biggest memorable, most memorable experience? Oh, I love it. That, that just encompassed everything you can think of in, um, just in terrain. It's, so, it's, so, it's perfect. So to finish the podcast, give us the top five reasons that you love the Chilka Trail. That it's the best thing you've done. And I've hiked with you a lot in the last 10 years. But the, the reason, the top five reasons, is the best thing you've done in the last 10 years. No, you didn't tell me about this one. Um, love Alaska. I was there with my best friends. Um, the topography was absolutely outstanding. Uh, that's three. <laughs> that's pretty good. Maybe it's time to go get something to eat, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Raj, uh, a.k.a. The Camel, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. We'll do it again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the N2 Backpacking Podcast. This is Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this podcast, visit Apple's iTunes store or download them directly at n2backpacking.com, the My Podcast tab. Music for this podcast was provided by the John Zed Band. For more information on this Atlanta-based musician, visit his website at johnzed.com. That's johnzedd.com. Or search for his latest release through iTunes. This podcast is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures, Inc. For more information or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at n2backpacking.com. That's little n, number two, backpacking.com. Now I'm learning what this life